This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. And I'm Dr. John Keenan. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we're going to be discussing an article about using buprenorphine alone versus buprenorphine naloxone combination in pregnancy. John, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Uh, everything is going well until I botched that audio in the last episode. So we're going to see how well our, our new editor does. But otherwise, things are fantastic. I'm glad. I'm sure we will make it sound amazing. John, is there anything that caught your eye in addiction medicine this week that you want to share with our audience? Yeah, I did want to share one thing with everyone. So anyone who's listened to some of our previous episodes, we did cover an article on psilocybin in the past for the treatment of alcohol use disorder. And I thought it was a really interesting article, kind of exploratory about a possible use of this in the future for treatment. And also, I had no idea kind of the mechanism of action or how this worked or how this is being implemented for treatment. There's also data about using it for major depressive disorder for treatment refractory patients. And as of January 1st, Oregon is now the first state to actually legalize psilocybin. And it's interesting, before we kind of jump to conclusions about hearing that, it sounds very surprising. Um, It's basically for treatment. And and the way that they're doing it, they're going to release it to anyone that's 21 uh, years of age and above. And you can be administered this medication under observation by a state certified, what they call a facilitator. So it's basically someone trained in administering and, and also kind of conducting the session under the influence of psilocybin for an indication of alcohol use disorder or depression. So it's not going to be like you go to a dispensary and, and get psilocybin. It's going to be kind of underneath this kind of certification program. Um That doesn't mean that that's starting today. So it sounds like it's going to be probably the end of the year by the time the first patient in Oregon actually receives this. They're currently kind of going through applications and training for these facilitators and who's going to be carrying this psilocybin for treatment use purposes. So I think that's really kind of an interesting idea. Um, I think previously when we reviewed it, there is some data for it. I'm somewhat surprised that kind of the state as a whole has already kind of embraced it off of the the data that's available, but certainly something that... um, I think we're going to hear a lot more about in the coming years. It's funny that you say that because just this week, that episode, which was episode nine about psilocybin, jumped to our become our most popular episode. It hadn't gotten a lot of interest. It was kind of near the bottom, actually, of our episodes. And all of a sudden, it's the most listened to one. So it must be because psilocybin was in the news a lot. A lot of people decided to listen to it and see what all the hype was about. Yeah, I think it's good. I, I really enjoyed that article because I think I didn't really understand like how it was being utilized. I have had some patients come to me that have bought it off the street and they have just taken it thinking that that's the treatment. The one kind of emphasis or point of that uh, article I would take away is that, you know, uh, the use of this um, psilocybin as a psychedelic, it's kind of always accompanied with a counseling session. So it kind of makes you more suggestible. So it's really not just like a free for all for using the drug to treat the condition. It's basically pairing of the cognitive behavioral therapy and the counseling session with the drug that seems to have some sort of effect. So um, I could see a patient walking into the office of any primary care doctor asking them about their thoughts on this. So just in case anyone is listening is interested to hear about like how it's utilized. I saw another really interesting article that just came out about the role of traditional music and ayahuasca ceremonies. You know, that's another hallucinogen that's used all over the U.S., but also in some traditional ceremonies, and there's special music 
that is played with the experience of taking the hallucinogen. And so the research was about the role of that music and what it does to the experience. Um, and I just think all this psychedelic research is going to open up not just therapeutic options, but really information about how the brain works and how the psyche works. As you said, it kind of makes you more susceptible to the experiences that are going on around you and maybe makes your brain more open and plastic and allows you to make some changes that you couldn't really make before. Um, and I just think we're going to learn a lot as this psychedelic research is allowed to pick up where it left off in the 70s before psychedelics became kind of illegal to study. How about you? Anything interesting in addiction medicine from your aspect? Well, I had a clinical question for you, a little bit of a case here that was a bit difficult in one of my buprenorphine clinics. So I had a patient with really significant buprenorphine-induced urinary retention, and this patient asked me what we could do about this. And I didn't really have an answer other than some behavioral things like changing positions, taking a warm bath, that kind of thing. So I didn't. I realized I didn't actually have much to say about how to help with the buprenorphine-induced urinary retention. So I did look it up, and there were some case reports using kind of peripheral mu opioid receptor antagonists like methylnaltrexone or a medicine called naldemidine, which I've never prescribed before. But there was nothing standard that a patient themselves could take at home, like a pill or something for this side effect. So my research didn't really lead me to any clear front runner for an intervention. So John, is this a side effect that you've seen a lot? When I looked it up, it said that true urinary retention for buprenorphine was found in less than 1% of patients who take the medication. You know, exactly. I think there's a discordance in the amount that's reported to me and, and probably what's actually occurring. Um, I think I saw the same statistic just looking it up recently. It's, it's less than a percent of patients that develop this. However, I have had a handful of people kind of report this to me um, throughout kind of the years I've been in treatment with or treating patients. And I've tried kind of unsuccessfully off-label other treatments before. So I've tried Flomax before. I feel like we tried that for everything in urinary retention, even in women, for some reason, it still works in some regards and, you know, fully induced urinary retention for our hospitalized patients. I don't know whether or not it's just time or really the medication's effective. Um, sometimes I, I feel like I have secondary gains with this from some patients. I think we've talked about this before where patients are kind of stating that they have urinary retention and can't provide urine drug screens for parole officers and kind of want kind of medical collaboration for that or to me to collaborate that story. And I feel like I get triangulated into this situation that I, I can't really kind of justify that they can't do drug screens for their parole officer. So I, I'm not really sure if there really is a discordance or whether or not it's just a, it's a mix of symptoms like that or a mix of uh, situations. Yeah. I've only had one patient in my office who I don't think the buprenorphine called full caused full urinary retention, but it really did make it difficult for him to pee, especially when he had to give urine drug screens. He really, it was a combination of anxiety and having to kind of pee on command. And then I'm sure the buprenorphine didn't help any, but even that gentleman after a while, usually he'd relax, we'd do the visit, then he'd try again at the end, and usually he was fine. So I've never seen anyone who truly had, you know, full-on urinary obstruction from buprenorphine. And hopefully I won't. That would be a terrible side effect. Yeah, definitely. I'll include a link to the case study I read in the show notes. And if any of our listeners have experience with this or have medications they know are helpful, definitely let us know. So John, are you ready to tell us about your article? Sure. Yeah, definitely. 
So um, the article I did, it's kind of in line with, I think, the last one I did. It's about kind of treatment of opioid use disorder in pregnancy. So it's buprenorphine naloxone versus buprenorphine for treatment of opioid use disorder in pregnancy. And this was from the Journal of Addiction Medicine in November slash December of 2022. And it was actually an e-supplement article. And, you know, shout out to the authors. I feel like this should not have been an e-supplement. This was a great article, and I really liked going through it. So a little bit of background. Um, From 2010 to 2017, the number of birthing persons with opioid-related diagnosis has increased 131%. As of 2017, the rate of neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome was 7.3 per 1,000 births, and the rate of opioid use disorder in birthing persons was 8.2 per 10,000 deliveries. Standard of care for maternal opioid use disorder is methadone and buprenorphine, which have both been proven to decrease the risk of overdose, return to use, mortality, pregnancy loss, and preterm birth. Previous studies have shown that buprenorphine compared to methadone was associated with a lower risk of preterm birth, greater birth weight, larger head circumference, less severe nows, and mothers treated are less likely to return to illicit opioid use near delivery. The addition of naloxone to buprenorphine was added to deter IV and intranasal misuse. If dissolved sublingually, naloxone remains inert, although there is a small fraction that is absorbed. If crushed or dissolved uh, for IV or intranasal misuse, the naloxone is activated, blocking the effects of the medication on the opioid receptors. 2004 guidelines from SAMHSA recommend combination buprenorphine-naloxone over buprenorphine for induction, stabilization, and maintenance of both patients receiving buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. Historically, birthing persons have been an exception to the recommendation to the use of combination therapy. The recommendation was based upon two case reports from the 1970s, which reported toxification during pregnancy increased the risk of stillbirth, fetal distress, and premature labor. Based upon this limited data, in 2014, WHO guidelines recommended that patients stable in buprenorphine naloxone before pregnancy be transitioned over to buprenorphine monotherapy once pregnant. With recommendations to transition birthing persons, this makes them increasingly vulnerable to misuse, coercion, theft, and violence. Observational and small retrospective studies examining the use of buprenorphine naloxone in pregnancy have not found adverse birthing effects or neonatal outcomes. What's your experience for pregnant women being treated with these medications, Sonia? So I'll just say it here. I love treating pregnant women. It's just a great time to treat people. And you get to help the mom be healthy. You get to help the baby be healthy. And it's just a great time to work with people. So I love working with people who are pregnant. I just let people use whatever formulation they prefer. You know, the data, like you said, showing any kind of harm from buprenorphine naltrexone combination is really just some old, old case studies. There really is no modern data showing that the buprenorphine naltrexone combination is harmful. And I've had quite a few people who really find one formulation or the other much more effective. I've had people who are on buprenorphine naloxone combo, they try to switch to buprenorphine monoproduct and just do really badly. And I've had people go the other way, they're on the buprenorphine monoproduct and they try to switch to the buprenorphine combo and they just don't like it, they don't do as well. So, you know, given those two things, I've been treating pregnant women with whichever drug they prefer for quite a few years now. There are some limitations, of course, because some insurances won't cover one formulation or the other. They'll only cover the buprenorphine monoproduct if you're pregnant and no other time. So I have run into that. But otherwise, I just let people use whichever formulation they want to use, which they, whichever they feel is best. Yeah, I think it is amazing as like 
you know, medical practitioners that um, we kind of get fixated and anchored on things once we kind of think either theoretically think of something or we have kind of these small case studies. And you know, these are from the 70s. And I, I didn't realize that was the historical context of this. Another one I always kind of grill the the medical students and the um, residents about is, you know, metronidazole with the disulfurin reaction. They have studies now showing that kind of medical students that drank alcohol while taking metronidazole, they didn't have increased rates of acetaldehyde in their blood and they had, didn't have increased risk of nausea and vomiting. And so it's one of those things where like in theory, it makes sense, but in reality, it doesn't, but we're still just anchored on this. It's true. And, and, you know, we have very poor research on pregnant people. You know, nobody wants to research pregnant people. And so a lot of these fixed ideas about pregnancy take a lot longer to be disproven or go away than some of the other ideas in medicine. So that contributes to some of these myths about pregnancy. So what is the clinical question in this study? First was, is there a difference in return to opioid use in pregnancy between birthing persons treated with the combination versus buprenorphine monotherapy? The second one, is there a difference in needs for pharmacological treatment of neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome and infants born to birthing persons treated with buprenorphine naloxone compared to buprenorphine? So that were their two big questions. The study design, this is a single center retrospective cohort study of deliveries at Boston University Medical Campus and Boston Medical Center from 2016 to 2020. Just to give you a little bit of background about uh, Boston University Medical Campus at this time frame, in June 2018, um, BMC institutionally transitioned from primarily prescribing buprenorphine to buprenorphine naloxone for the treatment of opioid use disorder in pregnancy. So they made a systemic shift in the prescribing patterns of the institution. In October of 2017, they also transitioned from treating NALS with a fixed methadone dose tapering to symptom-triggered methadone protocol, so also another change. Inclusion criteria in the study, any pregnant person receiving either buprenorphine or buprenorphine naloxone, they're receiving prenatal care from Project Respect for at least one week prior to delivery. They delivered at BMC between October 2016 and March 2020. Exclusion criteria was birthing persons transitioned from buprenorphine to methadone during pregnancy. And the population ended up being with 33 birthing dyads receiving buprenorphine naloxone and 73 birthing dyads receiving buprenorphine. To give you a background, this is about this project respect at BMC. And so this is a multidisciplinary program of prenatal and postnatal care for patients with substance use disorder, either active or history of this. If a patient had a history of opioid use disorder, they were referred to the program and offered outpatient initiation of agonist or partial agonist therapy for opioid use disorder. If they were actively using opioids, they were offered inpatient hospitalization for stabilization of their obstetric needs and for stabilization of their substance use disorder. And they had a standardized protocol for this, but if the case was complex or fell outside of the standardized protocol, there was ultimately a reflex for the addiction medicine inpatient consult team to be involved with the care of the mother. Outpatient follow-up visits combined uh, substance use disorder treatment and prenatal care and combined urine drug screens along with kind of care related to both of those issues. So data, retrospective birthing person data from the EMR was acquired on age, race, smoking status, psychiatric medication use, illicit drug use, comorbidities, gestational age and enrollment, buprenorphine dose at initiation, number of OB visits, number of prenatal visits, number of urine drug screens, 
number of returns to opioid use, gestational age at delivery, buprenorphine dose at delivery, mode of delivery, and breastfeeding status. And they basically counted you being active for a status if whatever the variable was present before 36 weeks gestational age and the pregnancy continued at least an additional two weeks after that. So, for example, if you quit smoking at 35 uh, weeks and six days and you didn't smoke for the remainder of the pregnancy, they counted you as a non-smoker. Retrospective neonatal data was also obtained from the EMR about sex, birth weight, head circumference, APGAR scores, NICU admission status, NALS outcomes, receipt of second-line treatment agents. So this would be like clonidine or barbiturates for their withdrawal syndrome, length of time receiving treatment, and length of stay related to NALS. So the outcomes were mother-related, but also neonate-related, and the birthing person outcome was return to opioid use, so that was determined by positive urinary drug screens, and the primary neonate outcome was receipt of pharmacological therapy for NALS. Any questions on how they designed that or what they came up with? No, I just thought it was a really nice study because I thought the outcomes were really patient-centered, and I love the use of the dyad, the baby, and then the parent together, and all the outcomes were things that the parents really want. You know, when I work with pregnant people, they just worry so much about neonatal abstinence syndrome or neonatal opiate withdrawal, as we call it, and they they just really worry about their baby. So I'm glad that that was included as an outcome. And then sort of patient-centered, you know, return to opiate use after pregnancy is an important outcome because, of course, sometimes pregnant women do get treated a little bit like a vessel to produce a baby, And people don't care so much what happens as soon as the baby's out and is healthy. They don't care so much about what happens to the mom. So I like that that was also included in this study. I really liked this study, too, because there was an institutional change. So even though we always see these articles where they do like covariate analysis to try to make groups equal, I think most of us that do addiction medicine, we know that there is a lot of art to this, right? You individualize your treatment plan to the person. I would say that's the overarching theme of addiction medicine. And I think there is always an X factor that I worry about how is it accounted for, like who receives what drug if they're all occurring simultaneously since kind of severity and clinical situation. Sometimes there's things that just don't kind of nicely placed into a demographic sheet or into a a comorbidity sheet. So I think that the fact that it was a systematic change in that institution, I actually kind of like that in this case. It's totally true. When you try to compare our research to like cardiology research, which, you know, is so tightly controlled, the data is so clean, the patients have so many, you know, the follow-up is so good. Addiction research just can't compare because you just can't control people like that. People are totally variable all over the place. Their life circumstances take them in all kinds of different directions. So I think studying a sort of full institutional change allows for you to really see a difference in how people are treated. Yeah. So the question is, is this trial valid? A couple things. The authors reported no conflict of interest. There was no disclosure of any uh, industry bias. There's a small sample size of 106 birthing dyads. I think that's a decent size for kind of what's going on here in this population. The authors pointed out that they kind of felt that their population was incredibly white, which may not be um, reflective of patients with opioid use disorder in the general population. Although I don't think that's a selection bias other than the fact that their population is incredibly white. This 90 plus percent of patients in this area are white. So I think it really just reflected their population and was not a selection or there wasn't a subgroup taken out of the population to this study. It's just what they had. Participants were not blinded or randomized. 
assignment to the two groups were totally based upon institutional practices at the time of engagement. So basically uh, pre-June 2018 or post-June 2018. A third of the patients approximately transitioned in the buprenorphine and uh, naloxone group from buprenorphine. So basically, I thought it was interesting that, you know, even when this crossover occurred in June, it sounds like patients that were even stable on the uh, mono product, they were still transitioned as part of the institutional protocol. So I'm, I'm surprised that they didn't give a washout period for that. Not that it's like a critique of the study. Um, it's more just kind of interesting. I th would have thought they would have got like a mulligan for that, for the prescribers in the middle of the pregnancy. But it actually kind of, I think, makes this more interesting to me. The primary outcome of return to drug use was limited to the results of in-office urine drug screens. So I think that we know most of us that do this very frequently that the urine drug screen in the office is a tool. It's not the be-all end-all. Many patients um, will kind of report drug use even if the screen is negative and confirmatory testing is always needed. They did do covariate analysis to try to adjudicate differences in the subjects. The retrospective design limited the ability of the authors to control for changes in the NOWS assessment and treatment protocol they evolved over the studies. So it sounds like what they're saying by this is that while there was like a abrupt change from like buprenorphine to buprenorphine naloxone, it sounds like the NALS protocol did not have a, a totally abrupt change. It was like an evolution over a period of time. So they had a tougher time uh, adjusting for that. What did you think, Sonia? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was valid. I thought the protocol was good. I just thought it was a good study. So interested to hear the results. So the results, and I'm going to throw a spoiler out here. There's no difference between the two groups. So, so, so go. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. If you want it, one takeaway, no difference. Okay. So let's go through this. Birthing person demographics, there was no statistically significant difference between uh, the patient's terms of age. On average, they were 30 years of age. Race, 91 to 92% were white. Uh, cigarette use, uh, 73 to 86% were smokers, which is somewhat sad for, for birthing persons. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that is so high. Yeah. Breastfeeding, 48 to 52%. That was optimistic. There was one uh, case of HIV, which is not statistically different between the two groups because it was a single case. Hepatitis C was incredibly common, 58 to 67% between the two. There was one case of diabetes prior to pregnancy. There was 3 to 4% cases of gestational diabetes between the two groups, 0 to 4% cases of hypertension between the two groups, and gestational hypertension was 31 to 45% between the two groups. And none of those were statistically significant in terms of their difference. The only statistically significant difference in the entire study was basically psychiatric medication use, so adjunct psychiatric medication use. And patients receiving buprenorphine and naloxone had 45% adjunct psychotropic medication use, while patients receiving just buprenorphine were 56%. I didn't really know how to interpret this. I will say that um, the head of our addiction medicine at our organization, Dr. Crawford, has a theory about this, that basically uh, BMC has a very prestigious addiction medicine um, fellowship program and training program. It has a great reputation and that they probably have a very high psychiatric care involvement as opposed to many other uh, places that do this type of work. Well, right. High care, you know, a, a lot of people receiving top-notch psychiatric care, but also people being bold with continuing medications with pregnant women, you know, maybe having more experience and being able to continue those medications where people with less experience might just say they weren't comfortable and the woman should stop, you know, the medication just in case there might be a problem. So in return to drug use, that was the primary birthing person outcome. 
12 patients, which was 36%, in the buprenorphine naloxone group returned to opioid use, while 17 patients, which was 23%, returned to drug use in the buprenorphine group. And that was similar findings with regards to whether or not they returned to use one time, two times, or they had three or more returns to use. So there's no difference between the two groups. In terms of prenatal and neonatal outcomes, so in terms of like the baseline kind of uh, characteristics, uh, there's no significant difference in terms of the buprenorphine dose at initiation. So it's 12 to 13 milligrams between the two groups during pregnancy. Uh, the gestational age and enrollment was similar between the two groups, 12 to 14 weeks, which was I thought that was actually awesome too, because a lot of other studies point to these patients coming late to care. So 12 to 14 weeks, that's online with kind of most patients into the obstetric pathway. The number of prenatal visits was 20 to 21, which is awesome as well. Number of obstetrical visits with the OBGYN provider, 9 to 10, very good. Buprenorphine dose at delivery, not um, surprisingly, was escalated from initiation, averaging 15 to 16 milligrams. Gestational age of delivery averaged 39 weeks. And delivery timing, 88 to 90% of these infants were delivered at term with 49 to 64% being delivered via vaginal delivery, which is relatively consistent with kind of cesarean section rates in the United States. John, I just have to say that that data is awesome. I think another article we presented a few episodes ago about pregnancy and opiate use disorder really showed the moms in that other study were not receiving what we would call gold standard or even basic prenatal care. And so seeing the people in this study really getting all those prenatal visits in, coming in for appropriate prenatal care, carrying the fetuses to term, you know, just doing really well. And a pretty low number returned to use after delivery. I think it was like 17 or 18%. I mean, it's still a lot, but compared to relapse after other periods of abstinence or relapse after leaving treatment in other populations, it's still pretty low. So overall, these people did really well. Yeah, I think my, my second kind of pound the back for kind of the authors of the study, I think my first one was that I, I think this shouldn't have been an e-supplement. I wish it was in the, the journal itself in terms of the paper copy. But I, I think this really points to how great of a job they, they're doing, right? I think that this shows that these comprehensive programs where you kind of like blanket people with all these resources that you can kind of achieve results similar to that of a population that doesn't have this, uh, this disorder. So it's fantastic stuff to read. So in terms of neonatal outcomes, there was no statistically significant difference in sex, low birth weight infants, so 12 to 14% were low birth weight. Mean birth weight was 3,142 grams to 3,147 grams. Head circumference was similar between the two groups at 34 centimeters. AFGARs at one in five minutes were eight and nine, which I think is what I see on every birthing delivery report that comes across my desk. Um, in terms of who've received pharmacological treatment for NALS, 40 to 45% received treatment. Six to 10% received a secondary pharmacological treatment. Total length of hospital stay related to NALS was six to seven days. And NICU admissions was 20 to 30%. Interestingly, when they did look at this, there was initially a statistically significant difference in between the two groups regarding the as-needed methadone treatment. However, when they kind of uh, adjusted this for the changing protocol, where it went from like a fixed taper to a symptom-based uh, trigger, it, there was really no difference. Yeah, I mean, great. I'm glad there was no difference. What did you think of those results, Sonia? I mean, you kind of spoiled it for me at the beginning. But, you know, I want everyone to get the point. 
So, so will these results help me in patient care? So I, I do treat pregnant women um, with opioid use disorder. And I think that, like you said earlier, many people in terms of the care of a pregnant person were somewhat hesitant to change our practices, right? I think most of us are just a little more conservative. We drag our feet a little slower. And so previously, I, I have been transitioning everyone over to buprenorphine. I will be honest, the longer and the more studies I read like this about the safety and the two being equivocal, I kind of have gotten less concerned about it. I feel like I drag my feet a little bit more. I, I'm, I'm not as concerned about it if there's an issue with the delay in the transition. I've still been transitioning patients, but I, I've kind of been counseling them that I would just take whatever they have as long as they have access to it. And when I do the prior authorization for the buprenorphine, when that goes through, they can make the transition at their leisure. And I've gotten increasingly more comfortable with longer intervals of doing that. The study really provides like a, a growing body of literature that both medications are safe. While this wasn't like discussed directly in this article, the current practice where we transition patients from the combination over to buprenorphine, it is a vulnerable period for them, right? So in many regards, most state insurances require, or at least I can't speak for most, I'm sorry, my state insurance in my state requires me to submit a prior authorization regarding justification for why I'm using that product as opposed to the combination product. And, you know, pregnancy often buys it for you. However, it may take a day or two to authorize that. That's a possible supply chain interruption. Patients are scared. They think that the combination product is harmful to their baby. Our maternal instincts are very strong for protecting their child. So it is a, just a possibility of an, of an area to destabilize a treatment plan. I think that while like the article's themes are not totally new in terms of the safety of this, I do think that this may be like the last straw that kind of makes me just feel comfortable with just leaving it if the patient's comfortable with it. I think that moving forward, instead of kind of making a recommendation, I think that like, as I said, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. I'm probably going to say the patient can do either one, whatever they're more comfortable with. And I'll, and I'll sleep all at night knowing that. How about you, Sonia? Yeah, I feel the same. I mean, I, still think that a lot of official recommendations or at least, you know, people's experience points towards using buprenorphine alone. And, you know, if people have had prior pregnancies, they've switched over to buprenorphine alone and they want to do it again because it worked well for them in the past. Um, I've had people hear some kind of horrible things from other providers. You know, I had one patient tell me that a provider who will remain nameless said that she would kill her baby if she didn't switch over to the buprenorphine monoproduct, you know, and I had to reassure her. But basically, like you, I'm happy to have people do whichever one they prefer. And if they're stressed out about not switching, I'll say they can switch. If they are happy where they are, I say it's fine. You can just stay on what you're on. A lot of people's OBs are still encouraging switching. And I don't want to feel like I'm arguing with anyone's OB when they're pregnant. So I'm happy just to go along with what they want if it doesn't harm the patient. But yeah, same as you. I'm happy to let people do whichever one they want. And I haven't encountered this scenario, but the one I'm really waiting to encounter is the the patient stable on naltrexone. Because I, I think there is a growing body about that, it, you know, if they're stable, continuing that. And I don't, I'm just interested to see how that actually pans out. That's my, I guess the last frontier for pregnancy for me is is what to do in that scenario. How about patients who are stable on sublocade and then get pregnant? Have you had anyone in that situation? Not yet. I'm sure it'll happen eventually. <laughs> yeah, that, that probably will happen relatively soon now that you say that. <laughs> Did I jinx it? I'm sorry. Probably. I have a lot of those patients right now. All right. 
Well, thank you for presenting that article. It's awesome. And another kind of positive article, an article showing that something we do helps people. So I'm glad we get to talk about some positive things in addiction medicine. I did want to share two comments from our listeners about episode 12. And also just to remind everybody who's listening, if you have anything you want to say about our articles or about the podcast, let us know and we would love to put your comment on the air. So these two comments were both about episode 12, which was about overdose from the combination of methamphetamine and opioids together. So the first was from a Dr. Randy Gilo or Gello, if I'm pronouncing it wrong, I apologize. So on the podcast, we had questioned why the rates of overdoses are higher for the meth-opioid combination than for opioids alone. And Dr. Gilo says, I think there are a few reasons why the overdose risk is higher when meth and opioids are used together. One is that some patients feel meth helps prevent overdose from opioids so they can use more opioids to get a higher high and feel protected by using meth to wake them up. In addition, when meth has opioids or fentanyl in it and you're using opioids, the synergistic effect of your known opioids with a meth lace batch can precipitate an overdose. Side note, I love these journal reviews, format, and summaries. The helpful links attached are great. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Dr. Gilo, and please keep sharing your knowledge with us. We appreciate it. The next comment was from Dr. Paul Vinsel, and Paul said, I really enjoyed the discussion of bad actors in the addiction medicine field. Could you continue this discussion on future episodes? Are you talking about addiction medicine physicians that make poor decisions in their treatment of patients or poor decisions in their personal lives or both? So, Dr. Vinsel, I was talking about both poor management of patients with addiction, and illegal decisions in general. I mean, if you Google Pennsylvania, because we're in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania doctor arrested, most of those are addiction medicine doctors. They just are, or pain management doctors. And they're bad stuff too. You know, one Pennsylvania addiction medicine doctor was charged with assaulting an officer during the January 6th Capitol riots as well. Um, I don't know if I can blame addiction medicine on that one. But when I saw the news story, I was like, of course, it's an addiction medicine doctor. I don't know. I guess all I have to say is to everyone out there listening, please be careful with your practice. Don't become a cautionary tale for us to share with the residents. And thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, email us message us on Twitter or Facebook, join our Facebook group, or comment on our YouTube channel. The links will be in the show notes. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy, audio editing by Aaron McHugh, video production by Paul Kennedy. We are a production of Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employer or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Have a great day. 